Welcome to Productivity Mastery. Stoy here, a productivity and performance coach on a mission to help businesses and people get the most out of their time. On this podcast, I'll bring you exceptional performers and together unlock what it takes to perform at your highest level. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this episode. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Productivity Mastery. Uh, I'm very excited to, to be welcoming today Howard Behar. First of all, I recently understood that uh, his uh, grandfather is Bulgarian. So one reason to be... My father, my father was Bulgarian. Was it your father? Yeah, my father and grandfather. Yeah, right. Wow. So that's, that's one reason. But I'm even more excited uh, having in mind the uh, in, incredible story that uh, Howard uh, has. And uh, by the way, those of you who are tuning in right now, who are listening, there is a fantastic book that you should all get a copy of. If you are into leadership position, if you're an entrepreneur, it's called, It's Not About the Coffee. And we're going to be talking today about servant leadership. We're gonna be talking about the story of Starbucks. Super, super excited. Howard, what is your, let's start there. What is your favorite Starbucks beverage? A triple tall Americano, double cup, no room. No, no cream, no sugar, nothing, just coffee. But three shots of espresso and about six ounces and plus six ounces of water, hot water. I love it. I'm more of a classic guy. I'm, I'm always uh, going to the, you know, large uh, cof, cup of coffee, like just, yeah, just coffee coffee. latte. I don't, yeah. I don't do the fancy ones like, but, but I, I guess it's a choice. But uh, can you maybe uh, just to begin this conversation, share a little bit about your upbringings and where did you grow up and what brought you to the professional journey that uh, you embarked on later on? Uh, well, I, I grew up, my, I was the son of two immigrants that came to the United States in the early 1900s. My dad came from Bulgaria in 1911 as a 15-year-old. He had a brother in Vancouver, British Columbia that had a small grocery store and his brother was the oldest child and my father was the youngest. There was 20 years difference between the two and they, uh, they had, both of them eventually moved to Seattle. My dad met my mother in Seattle and they got married in 1929 or 28, I think it was something like that. And so I, I grew up son of two immigrants. I was the baby of the family, a brother 10 years older and a sister 14 years older. And, you know, I grew up understanding that life wasn't always easy and it wasn't easy for them. And, you know, they figured out how to support three kids. My dad had a small mom and pop grocery store and that's where I learned retail. From the time I was a little kid, I was in that store. And so I watched him, you know, uh, clean the produce, put the produce out to sell, put all the canned goods out, the meat market, everything, hire people, fire people, do advertising, balance the books. And you know that gave me a, a liking and understanding for how retail works. And I pretty much have spent my whole life in consumer, some form of retail or another. And I, when I was about my mid twenties, uh, I got interested in servant leadership. And I, somebody introduced me to a man named Robert Greenleaf, who had written a treatise on on servant leadership. And I, and I read that little book and I said, that's me. That's who I want to be. And that began my journey on servant leadership. And I've been learning ever since for the last over 50 years. And I'm still, I'm still learning today it's about servant leadership, but it's, it's my cause celeb, if you want. It's, uh, 
it's what I really believe in about how organizations should be led. And that's what I brought to Starbucks. By the time I got to Starbucks, I was 44 years old. Starbucks was a little tiny company. Well, compared to what we are today, some people wouldn't say, but it was 28 stores and losing money. And I brought servant leadership to Starbucks and that's what I drove inside of Starbucks. I, I coined this phrase that we weren't in, in the coffee business serving people, but we were in the people business serving coffee. And that became the driving force for the inside of Starbucks. And as I understand, it wasn't an immediate decision to join Starbucks. Uh, in your book, you are sharing that, in fact, you are not qualified for the position as, yeah. as from the job ad. <laughs> That's right. Howard Schultz uh, was interviewing for vice president of operations and um, we met and somebody introduced us and the first two things, he wanted somebody with a college degree. I didn't have that. He wanted somebody who had food service experience. I food service experience. I didn't have that. Finally, we got down to number 10. Can I breathe? I could breathe. But that was about the only thing I was qualified for. And besides, I was trying to buy a little business at that time. I wanted to do my own thing and uh, about a year passed and by accident, I met Howard again and he was still looking for a VP of operations. And uh, I asked him, I said, Howard, can I work in the company for a week? I'll do it for free. And you look at me, I'll look at you. And that's what I did. I worked in the trucks for a few days. I worked in the stores for a few days. And I worked in the roasting plant for a few days. And at the end of that week, uh, I came to the conclusion that this would be a good, great place for me. And fortunately, Howard extended an invitation for me to join. But, you know, it was by accident. You know, I turned, ended up turning right instead of turning left. And, uh, you know, I never knew what Starbucks would become what it's become. I was just, I saw something unique in the place. And I liked the people. And I thought, hey, this is a good place for me. And you and Howard, uh as it seems you're two very different characters. You've also been coming from a different industry before. How was it like to start working together and actually build up this team and this team spirit in the leadership? You're also talking about the H2O, the three leaders. And also interesting, having in mind, as I understand, you were a little bit more experienced than Howard at the time. Yeah. How did yeah, that work? Howard was 33 years old at the time. He'd never really run anything. And, but he had, but he was persistent kind of guy, you know, and he went out and he raised the money to buy Starbucks. I don't know if I could have done that. And, um, and so he was trying to put together this company. He was the one that sensed that at the time he bought the company, we hardly sold a cup of coffee. We sold coffee, making equipment, coffee to brew at home, chocolate, tea, spices, a bunch of other stuff, but not hardly a cup of coffee. And, so he had the idea of changing the company to more a beverage oriented company. And that's what we did. And, and he did it. And working with Howard was, you know, he was like every other entrepreneur, persistent as hell. I mean, he didn't know from no, if you said no to Howard, he'd go around the office trying to find somebody that would say yes to him. And then he'd come back to your office and tell you that the other guy thought it was a great idea, you know? So, you know, he's putting the pressure on you to agree with him, but you know, I, I kind of was old enough and I, that, you know, I didn't always agree with Howard and we used to have some blood arguments about things. And, uh, you know, amazingly enough, he didn't fire me. Probably most anybody else probably would have fired me for the kind of arguments we got into. And uh, they weren't just, you know, warm, friendly arguments. They were yelling, screaming matches. And, but, you know, over time it worked and 
Warren Smith came on board the O and the H2O and he was kind of, we called him the tortoise. He was kind of slow and methodical. And he was a guy that was always creating peace between Howard and I. And, you know, I was there 21 years and Howard and I developed a lot of respect for each other. I could have never done what Howard did and he couldn't do what I did. And, and we couldn't do what Orrin did. And so the three of us together led the organization and, and we each had unique skills, but we had some one commonality that I, I was raised, you know, by, like I said, depression era, era parents, immigrants. Howard was raised in a family that was very poor and uh, a suburb of Brooklyn. And Orrin was raised in a farming community with a single mother head of household. So none of us had a lot. And when we came together, we said, we're, we're not gonna do this on the backs of people. We're gonna do this with people. And everybody is gonna share in the success of this company if we are successful. And so everybody got equity. We gave everybody healthcare. Nobody, nobody in our industry, particularly in the United States had healthcare. And we gave even part-timers healthcare. And so, you know, we just decided we were gonna do it the right way. And, and we did, and it was a fast track. You know, we were going pretty fast. I was there with 28 stores. We doubled the amount of stores the first year I was there. And then we doubled it again. Then we doubled it again. And before you know it, we had 2000 stores, <clears throat> you know. And while you're building and growing so fast, uh, a lot of companies and a lot of leaders out there today, they'll be very curious to hear, how do you, how do you build a strong culture that you can scale afterwards. And I've been reading a, a little bit, I'm not part of the organization, but I've been reading a little bit about the, the little booklet that you guys created. I'm really yeah. curious about how did you create that? Was that a process? Was that a, we said to get on a workshop and we boil it down to get like, what was the process and how do you manage to scale this culture while the company was growing? Well, the cu culture is a direct reflection on the values and actions and decisions that leaders make and have, right? There's no way about it. Every organization has a culture. The question you have to ask yourself, is it the culture you want? And we wanted an open culture. We wanted a culture built on trust and built on respect. And that meant that we had to act that way, you know, because you can't be a jerk and then expect to have a good culture. Well, you, you'll have a culture, it'll be a culture full of jerks, you know? But uh, we, we, wanted, we wanted it to be different. And so the Little Green Apron book actually came about from a woman named Jennifer Caraman. I retired once and then I came back to help out for a while. And when I came back, she said she had this idea about creating this little booklet. And she called it the Little Green Apron book because we wear green aprons. And so I said, well, what's gonna be in it? She says, all the values that we espouse and what those values mean. And I said, okay, go for it. You know, I didn't, I didn't get in her way. I said, just go for it yourself. When, as you move along forward, keep me informed of what you're doing and what you're putting into it. We had conversations about it and I disagreed with her on some things. She disagreed with me on some things, but, uh, but at the end of the day, she did it. It wasn't me at all. And I, all I did was support it and make sure she had the resources she needed to do it. And that became kind of a, uh, you know, all, a, a reminder that we could all carry with us because it was maybe about three inches by four inches and you could put it in your back pocket and you could refer to it all the time. And it, basically it was about our values and how we, how we wanted to live our lives with inside of Starbucks. And it was, a, it was a significant little piece, you know, it wasn't the booklet itself, it was what was in the booklet, right? 
<laughs> and we drove that with inside of Starbucks. And so everybody got one and everybody had it, everybody read it <clears throat> and everybody understood. But we, we, all we did was, all she did was write down the things that we were already doing. <clears throat> she just documented it. They were already in existence and she just documented it. And, and so, because she felt that we needed to have something like that and she was right. And this is such an important lesson because many people sit together, they try to define the values of their team and they start coming up with these fancy words and aspirational yeah. values. It's like, no, observe what is already yeah. happening. What do we prioritize? Right. How do we take decisions right now? Yeah, yeah. and how do we, what do we want? You know, we wanted a culture of service to people, both to our, the people that worked in the organization and those human beings we call customers, service to them. And so that was it. And, you know, what I found in my lifetime, if you don't treat people well, they're not going to treat your customers well. Period. No ifs, no ands, no buts. You can't manipulate people into doing it. They have to believe that, that it's the right thing to do and it's in their interest to do it. And, and they, they have to agree in, in, uh, with the values of the organization. And those are the kind of people that we tried to hire. And if we got people that couldn't be that, then they didn't have a place at Starbucks. I love that you're saying that. And there was a story that you shared that uh, the other podcast that we're doing, the leaders who care, uh, yeah. that really touched me. And that was a story, maybe if you can kind of reshare this story here as well, the story where you had an employee that had a very bad diagnose. Yeah. And then um, if you can maybe just share the story. Sorry. So it was a guy's name. He was a store manager at Starbucks in Seattle. And his name was Jim. And when I'm, I'm there at Starbucks about three months. And Jim gives me a call and said he'd like to come see me. And he'd like to come see Howard Schultz, who was the CEO. And, and so trying to be a good executive, I tried to say, well, Jim, is there anything I can do for you? And he said, no, I need to see you both. And so I... I made an appointment with Jim and he showed up on the appointed day and, and we went back to Howard Schultz's office and Howard was on the phone and we sat in this little love seat in Howard's office and next to each other and we were talking while Howard was on the phone. Howard got off the phone and, and Howard, he knew, Howard, he had known each other for a while because Howard had been there a lot longer than I have, of course, and Jim had been too. So, uh, so I finally said to Jim, well, what can we do for you, Jim? I was kind of sorry that I asked the question after he told me, he said, well, I need to tell you both I have AIDS. Now this is this was in the early day of AIDS. And we didn't know a lot about it. And you know, we didn't know is it catchy? What is it? You know, and so we Howard said, Well, what what can we do for you? How can we help you? And and Jim said, Well, I'd like to work until I no longer can work. You know, and Howard said, Of course you can work until you no longer can work. Now, remember, we didn't know whether AIDS was catchy or not, whether it was a virus, but Howard didn't even think twice about it. He said, of course, you can work. And then Howard asked him a question. He said, what are you going to do when you can't work? And he said, well, there's some agencies that have been developed that, that are supporting people with AIDS. And Howard said, absolutely not. You know, we will pay you a full salary as long as you're with us and uh, as long as you're alive. And Jim didn't think he would live past a year, and it turned out to be true. He didn't. But, and then Howard said, who's gonna pay for your health care?" And Jim said, well, again, there's an agency that will. And Howard said, no, you'll be on our health care until you pass away. 
And I remember we're a little tiny company losing money and Howard just stepped right up to the plate and he said, we will take care of you. You're, you're our part of our family. Man, and that, if I've ever had a message, a clear message, that was it. That he, I mean, it told me right away, I could do anything to support people. And that message went throughout Starbucks that we could do anything we needed to support our people. And there's hundreds of stories like that about how we supported people that got sick, or even people that had to, needed a kidney. And one of our store managers gave that customer, was a customer that needed a kidney. And our, one of our store managers gave a kidney. So, you know, it was, that message went throughout Starbucks and that's about, that's real caring. You know, caring is easy when it doesn't cost you anything. Caring is not so easy when, when it costs you money and time and emotion and everything else. And Howard proved the point that we were going to carry even when it cost us. And, and I love that you're sharing all these stories because there's a lot of companies out there that have a beautiful booklet with uh, beautifully languaged values, but how much do they actually live them? Like what I hear from many people working in Starbucks uh, from, from your stories, from the stories of, uh, of Howard, it's, it's not about stating beautifully languaged values. It's about your actions. It's about your decisions. It's about leading by example and being a caring leader, not just for the PR department. So, so thank you so much for sharing this. Another story that was really interesting for me was a story that you share in the book about uh, this situation when you opened the store in uh, Toronto and uh, the landlord gave you some information. I don't know if you recall yeah. the story right now, but I think I, it's not a brilliant example if you can share it. Yeah. Well, we uh, were leasing a store in Toronto and, and in the store was a tavern of some kind, a bar of some kind that somebody had been in, an owner had been in a long time and the landlord wanted to change that. Well, it, be, it became a, a rallying cry around the people that went into that bar. And I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of it. And, and so we were criticized for the fact that we were taking the lease. I mean, we didn't know. We were just signing, you know, we were taking a lease. The landlord had come to us. And, and so it became such a rallying cry that we just decided we, we don't need the store. And we, we said, this guy can have it and it's okay with us. And we ran an article in the, in the Toronto newspaper telling people what we were doing and why we were doing it. And I think that it, you know, it made such an impression on people that we're willing to walk away from a lease and allow somebody to stay there. And, and it was the right thing to do because we didn't want to be where we weren't wanted. And, and we wanted to honor this other person. And, you know, sometimes you got to give up things and it's okay. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. We could always find another lease, but this guy couldn't. And so he ended up staying there and I don't remember exactly what happened, but but it's the kind of thing you do when, you, when you're trying to live your values. Howard, how do, you, how do you find the courage to do the right thing? I think most people actually want to do good, but when they're pressed with business objectives, with uh, deadlines, with uh, other things, they tend to prioritize business over sometimes doing the right thing. How did you have the courage for so many years to, despite uh, sometimes maybe losing on a business side short term to, to still do the right thing? Well, you either live your values or you don't, right? It's, it's not, it's, see, the, everybody says, well, it's either or. Either you, live, you can live your values or you can make money. That's just an excuse. That's a fallacy. That, that's not real. 
You can live your values and make money. And that's what we tried to do. I mean, we needed to make a profit. You know, if we were going to carry on with this great experiment called Starbucks, we had to make an adequate profit. But we didn't have to do it on the backs of our people. We had to do it with our people. And that's what we tried to do. Were we perfect? No, we were not perfect. We made mistakes. and But we always had a self-correcting mechanism. And, and that mechanism always brought us back to our values and, and how we wanted to act. And so I, I, I reject that, that idea that you can't make money and treat people well and live by your values. I think it's the opposite. I think if you don't treat people well and live by your values, you're not going to make money. You may make it in the short term, but you're not going to make it in the long term. I love that. And uh, you also, uh, one thing that is really interesting for me, and I, I love this, uh, what, you, what your take on that is the, you seem to not really, to put it kindly, enjoy having strict rules, but <laughs> you, <laughs> you like to, to more um, empower people and yeah. to help them to set the right expectations, but yeah. give them freedom to be creative. Can you maybe talk about that as well? Well, there's a couple of things. When I first came there, you know, we were hiring people out of the restaurant and quick fast food industry, you know, to, to come work. And they all wanted a manual. Everybody without fail, they said, we got to have manuals. And I said, I hate men. I hate rules, right? So I only tried to operate, manage by four rules. Don't do anything illegal. Don't do anything immoral. Don't do anything unethical and sure as hell, don't poison anybody. That was the most important rule. And so I said, no manuals, but I'll tell you what, you know, we can have tool books. So if you think of a toolbox, right, has a screwdriver in it, it has pliers in it, it has maybe a hammer, all the different kinds of tools. Well, you don't go to the toolbox when you don't need the tool, do you? If you've got another way of doing it, let's say you're in your kitchen and you notice in the little light switch, that one of those little screws that holds the light switch on is loose. You don't need to go into the garage. You can go into your knife drawer. You can get out a little knife and you can tighten the screw down, right? So you got to use your head. You don't need to walk a hundred feet to do it. You can use that, that tool. So I said, I want people to go to, see when you have a manual, everybody wants to go to it for every decision. I wanted people to think for themselves. So the manual was, we had, you know, we had how to make drinks. And, but most important thing is we had why we do the things we do. Not just the what, but the why. Because people remember the why. They don't necessarily remember the what, but they do remember the why. And so that's what we had. We had, we had tool books. And so you went to a tool book when you absolutely needed it, not when you didn't need it. And most of the things, you know, uh, revolve, most of the things we dealt with revolve, revolved around serving our customers, you know, those human beings. You don't need a manual for that. Just take care of the customers. Say yes. You know, and I always believe that the person who sweeps the floor should choose the broom. And what that means is you hire great people, you bring them in, you explain to them why we're here, what's our greater purpose, what are values, why those values are important, and you ask them to sign on to that. And, and then you tell them what their role is and what good work looks like in their role. And then you say, go for it. Let's talk in two weeks. And, you know, if they come back and say, you know, I found a better broom than the one we're using on the internet, listen to them. You know, don't listen to the purchasing department that says we only can have one kind of broom. 
you know, try things. And you hire great people, give them room to run, let them make a mistake, you know? And so, you know, that's the idea of it. You don't have to, you know, clamp down on, on your people. You know, I, I'm always, I always laugh about bosses that say, we're going to do well here as long as you don't give, bring me any surprises, right? I've never met a boss that, that when, when, when somebody that worked in their company brought them a, a big sale that they weren't expecting and it was a surprise, right? They love those surprises. They just don't want the surprises that maybe go the other way. But the problem is in life, you get both sides of the equation. You get good surprises and you get what we call bad surprises. And you got to be willing to deal with both. You mentioned people so many times and I'm so great that you, uh, you've been a living example of that putting people first can be great for a business, great for scaling organization. You mentioned values as a, as a core, a fundamental of and yeah. attracting the people that have the same values. What would be some other advices from your experience when it comes to attracting the right people who are not just fitting the culture and the values, but actually they can perform and actually get things done? Well, you have to you have to live the values. I don't care what your performance is. I don't care how how much how many sales you bring into the company. If you're a jerk and you treat people disrespectfully, you have no place in the company because that's number one. Sales are number two. Now we had to make sales, but you know you also had to do it in the right way, honestly, with caring and love with your for your customers. And, you know, and, all, and that you could, you couldn't be a jerk and survive at Starbucks. You, it was hard to get fired at Starbucks for missing your numbers. It was easy to get fired at Starbucks for messing with the people. I love that. And at some point, as you mentioned, you, you left the company, you came back and uh, from what I understand, you found, uh, as you like to call it, me-oriented culture yeah. starting to evolve. And I'm curious, uh, you say it in the book, focus on the big we, uh, which is quite interesting. I'm curious, how did you, first of all, spot that, but then what did you do to, what specific practices did you did you start doing so you can empower this we culture once yeah. again? Well, when I came back, I didn't get it at first, but I knew something was wrong because everybody was coming into my office and asking, what's my next job? How much more am I going to get paid? Where can I get more responsibility? You know, and uh, okay, fine. People have a bit right to do that, but it was almost everyone. It and I felt that something was off. And the guy that I replaced kind of had that orientation. You know, he was a resume builder, and I I always believe don't you know forget about your resume. You know, do right, do the do things right. Don't worry about your resume; it'll take care of itself. So you know, finally, I sensed that. It had turned from a we organization to a me organization. And I started talking to people about it. I, and I was frustrated because I, I didn't know what to do. And I started talking to people about it. And I, and I said, what's happened here? And they related some stories. Finally, I, I got everybody together. And I said, if we're going to survive here, right, if we're going to make it, then we, we can't be a me organization. It can't be about ourselves. It has to be about the team. It has to be about the whole organization. And it has to be about the people that we're serving. It's not about us. It's not about what we get. It's about what we give. And so I decided I needed to do something to bring the team together. And there's nothing like there's not, nothing like a big goal that everybody's mad because you created it to bring people together. They all get mad at you. They have 
they get they become we when they when they're mad at you. And so uh, I created this goal out of thin air, and that we had we were going to grow the average unit volume of the stores by one hundred thousand dollars in three years. Now that was a significant growth. That was on top of the inflationary growth that we were already getting. So. You know, my son was actually working for the company at the time, and he was he was running a division in uh, uh, merchandising, and he, he was so mad at me, he came to me and said, you're pitting us against each other. I said, no, I'm not. I said, you know, everybody's got to contribute here. And I, I said, I want everybody to come back to me in a month and tell me what what each each department, what piece of that 100,000 they're going to contribute. So everybody, human resources, legal, supply chain, merchandising operations, everybody had to come back and commit what they were gonna contribute and how they were gonna do it. And so, you know, we, we all got together and, and uh, you know, they all started talking about what they were gonna do and we challenged them. And, and, and so they went back with that goal and we set up these thermometers throughout the whole building to show progress we were making for that $100,000. And of course, merchandising, my son had to contribute a big amount that made him mad, you know, but I said, you know, the one, the people that contribute the most are going to get the most resources. That's just the way that it is in life. Right. And so he did, uh, he did his part operations probably was the second biggest and over, I, did, I retired again by the time this was all done, but in three years time, they not only contributed a hundred thousand, they contributed 150,000. Now, I didn't know how we were going to do it. I didn't even know if we could do it. But even if we only got 50,000, that was significant. And so, you know, that's what we were trying to do. And I, it turned it back into a we organization because they had something that was challenging that they had to do together. And that's what I did. And, and I just went back to that. And, and all of a sudden, you know, our conversations weren't about what am I going to get? The conversations were about what we were going to contribute. Yeah, creating the, it's impressive, Howard, what you're sharing, because, you know, I, I don't think people understand the scale of this, like it's a, thinking about Starbucks, um, I don't know how many stores were by the time you left the company, but, but it's a huge company, it's a really huge multinational company, and, and creating a culture that scales, yeah. it's just, uh, you know, how do you do that, right, I mean, how do you, how do you make sure that the barista in Brazil is behaving the same well as the person who is in Bulgaria serving? Uh, yeah. You know, like, uh, I mean, it's, you can't be everywhere all the time. So you have to set into motion with, re, with constant repetition of what matters. And then you have to live true to those values. And it's not just me, everybody had to. So the regional managers, regional vice presidents, the district managers, and you know, did we have people that didn't? Yes, we did. Yeah, absolutely, right? But, but we're always, always trying to reinforce it and to get people back to where we were. And so that's what we talked about all the time. And that's what we tried to hold true to. You know, we weren't, like I said, we weren't perfect. There are no perfect organizations, but we always tried to self-correct to what was important in the organization. And I think for the most part, I'm proud of the company we are. I mean, I think that, if you go to Tokyo, you go to Toronto, you go to Quebec, you go to London, you pretty much see the same thing. You know, people taking care of people and trying to do it the right way. That didn't, again, that doesn't mean it always happens. I'm not, 
I wouldn't lie to you and tell you that it did. It didn't. And but we always had ways of figuring out where it wasn't going right and and correcting. This is the power of uh, setting up a strong uh, set of values and having yeah. everybody to buy into it because you can always go back and say, I understand where you come from, but this is not what we stand for. Yeah. We're here to inspire human spirit. You are not here. Your job is not to serve coffee. Yeah. No. Serving coffee is, is your vehicle, one of the vehicles for you to inspire the human spirit. People. Yeah, we weren't in the we weren't in the coffee business serving people. We were in the people business serving coffee. And it sounds like a small play on words, but that really was the driver. And as a servant leader, there's many people I'm sure listening right now that would like to be living this, this servant leadership uh, um, whole ideology. I'm curious, how did you take care of yourself? And what did you, what you tell to the leaders out there? Because being a servant leader is also coming down to putting a lot of effort, a lot of energy. Uh, not only you have to do all the work, but you also have to be more conscious about the way you lead, which means you need to also take care of yourself. But I'm wondering, what did you do in order to be in shape to take care of your mental, physical, uh, and emotional well-being? Well, uh, you know, I, I have my mission statement goes like this. Every day I want, I want to nurture and inspire the human spirit, beginning with myself first and then for others. So that means that I had to be okay emotionally. I had to be, I had to be okay physically and, you know, and mentally. I, you know, I, I, had to, I had to live my talk. Was I perfect at that? No, I, I'm not the one that's going to tell you I was. I had worked 70 hour weeks. I was traveling 70% of the time. I was tired a lot, but, but I was energized by the greater purpose of the organization. You know, uh, you know uh, and that's what I wanted to do. And I wanted to live out our values and I wanted Starbucks to do that. And I wanted to prove that a company could be successful and still treat people well. And, you know, and that's what we try to do. So that was motivational for me. That, and that I found the energy when I needed it. Yeah, you know, I don't agree to that. I, I just found it. And, you know, I'm that kind of person. I have a lot of energy and a lot of passion for things. And so I was a driver. And that meant that I had to push myself sometimes. You know, was it always comfortable? No. Did I get tired? Yes. But I never got bored. And I never burned out. I'm really grateful that you're sharing this because I think there's still this kind of a picture that we create that there's this uh, exceptional executives and leaders that always take the right decisions and they're never tired, they never mess things up. So I think uh, having you to share some of these uh, honest, what it really takes is releasing a lot of the stress and the pressure we put on ourselves, the expectation yeah. that we need to be perfect. What, what do you yeah. think about perfection? What's, what's your take on that? Uh, well, I, I think we should always drive for performance, okay? I, I think that we should always try to do our best. Nothing is ever gets to perfect, you know? I mean, you know, uh, it, so, but that doesn't mean that you should let go when you think you can do better. And so, but being perfect, I mean, I'll, let me tell you, let me say this. If you're, a, if you're a heart surgeon, you better be perfect, right? If you're serving a cup of coffee, perfect, 
you know, it's not going to always be perfect because everybody has a different opinion what a great cup of coffee is. So, you know, uh, but, you know, I think that you should always try to live up to your promises. Maybe that's a better way of putting it. So live up to your commitments to your people and to the people that you're serving and, and, and be relentless in trying to make it better. Had a conversation, a great conversation with, uh, I don't know if you are familiar with uh, David Allen and getting things done, the concept uh, methodology. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we had a great conversation with David and one of the things he shared is that when he starts working with uh, leaders, with executives, one of the first things he does is to get them to get a piece of paper and unload on a piece of paper all the commitments that they have. Yeah. Everything, all the expectations towards other people, to, to the people they, they manage, to in the family, anything. You just put it on a piece of paper and you start from there. And yeah. uh, I think it's a, it's a great kind of a reflection. It's an eye-opener. Eye it makes you realize you are not going to be perfect. Yeah, and, and you know, that's a, that's a great uh, reminder for all of us, especially when things are not going well. You know, yeah. I, I come from the movie movie production industry, and uh, while we were producing movies and crafting stories and shaping stories, it was super interesting that when you see a character of a movie, you 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 build a character and then you put them on the stress, and and the story is never like a straight line; it's right. always up and down. Yeah. But somehow, because when we live our lives, we, we want everything to be perfect. We want things to be smooth. And if they are not, we start beating ourselves up like something's wrong. Yeah, and well, I don't believe in that. I don't believe in that. That goes with the word happiness. Everybody thinks they should be happy all the time. Happiness is part of life. It is not life, right? You know, if you want to have a fulfilling life, then happiness can be a part of that. Joy can be a part of it. But disappointment needs to be a part of it. Failure needs to be a part of it. Success needs to be a part of it. Uh, everything that goes into making a whole life needs to be part of it. And happiness can be one part of that. But you're never happy all the time. You're never successful all the time. You never get everything done all the time. You know, and you've got to learn to deal with all parts and facets of your life and understand that you're going to have failures. You're also going to have joy. You're going to have successes. You're going to, you know, all the things are going to make a whole life. How do you deal with that? Like you personally, um, when you've been into difficult situations and maybe getting into a more negative mental state based on that, like, do you have any mental strategies that you've been using to, to go smoother through these difficult uh, challenges? I try to affirmations. So I have one affirmation that's been, or two of them that have been with me for almost for 50 years, one goes like this, I am enough, I have enough, I do enough. I am enough, I have enough, I do enough. And the other one is I love myself unconditionally. I love myself unconditionally. Now, I'm not perfect, I get down on myself sometimes. I have these little board of directors that sits on my shoulders and they're yapping at me all the time. And one of them is on me all the time. You're not that good, Howard, forget it. You know, you're never gonna be that good or whatever it is. And I have to decide, am I gonna to listen to that one? Or am I gonna to listen to the one over here that says, Howard, you're okay. You're gonna be okay. This too shall pass. Like my mother used to always say, Howard, this too shall pass, you know? And she was right. And sometimes I have a hard time remembering that, you know? I'm going through one of those situations right now. I'm having some health issues. My blood pressure's up and I can't, no matter what medication I get on, it doesn't seem to wanna come down. And it, 
creating a little fear in me. You know, what's going on with me? And it's because um, I've had a stroke before, so I have to be careful. And, and so, you know, I'm, I'm working through it. And, you know, I, it takes, sometimes it takes me a week to work through it. You know, it doesn't just go away instantaneously. It takes me a week or two to work through it. And then I, I kind of start to accept myself again. And I repeat, I am enough. I have enough. I do enough. I love myself unconditionally, you know, and I start to listen to the voice that says you're going to be okay. Do you do that every day or like disinformation? Yeah, yeah, I do. Well, look at, we got self-talk going on all the time. But somebody's talking to you right now, right? There's somebody on your little shoulder talking to you. I don't know what they're saying to you, you know, uh, you know, uh, but whatever they're saying to you, they're, they're talking to you. And that's that subconscious talking to you, yapping at you. You got different people. There are different messages that are being relayed all the time. You know? Because somebody once said, I don't remember who that was, but if somebody is recording our inner voice, uh, everybody needs to be put into a madness house. Yeah, oh yeah, I, yeah, I, absolutely. That is, it's amazing what we say to ourselves. Absolutely, and, and, and Howard, uh, when it comes to self-management, um, uh, how did you navigate having uh, this ambitious career and lots of responsibilities professionally with your personal life? Do you have any kind of a very practical things that you've been doing in terms of you know, let me set the goals for a year and make sure that all the important areas in my life are having enough attention, something that has been very useful for you, maybe. Yeah, well, I've always been a planner. So along with my values being written down, my mission statement being down, my six P's written down, I've always had a five-year plan. So in the five-year plan covers, and my wife and I have done it together. So the five-year plan covers spirituality, material, economic well-being, career, what we call life's work, family, grandchildren, our marriage, travel, uh, all the different parts of our lives. And then we set goals, three to five goals under each of those. Uh, you know, some are individual goals that only relate to ourselves as individuals inside of our family. Some, most of them relate to the combined entity of our marriage. And so we have goals and we try to achieve those goals. Do we achieve all of them? No, but that's how we manage it. And, and now you asked how do you know the, that word balance? Everybody thinks they need to have balance in their life. I prefer a different word, integration. I think we need to integrate our lives. That means all parts of our lives come together into one. Sometimes you spend more time in your family than you do at your work because your family needs the attention. Sometimes you spend more time at work because the work needs attention. If you're always trying to balance out two hours here, two hours there, an hour here. Ah, it doesn't work like that. You're always out of balance. If you, if you think about an ice skater that skates on an ice, and since you're from, you're in Canada, right? I'm actually in Bulgaria right now. You're, you're, you're in Bulgaria right now. Well, okay. You know, Canadians are big in hockey, right? Ice hockey. Well, they're on skates, that narrow piece of metal that goes along. They're always out of balance, right? They're never on the perfect edge of the skate as they're skating. And they learn to deal with being out of balance. Why? Because they integrate the whole thing of how they skate with the, with the hockey stick, where the puck is, where the, the competitors are on the ice rink. They have to figure all that out. So they have to integrate it. If they are totally focusing on remaining on that edge, they'd never make a goal. 
right? We're, we're always in motion. Yeah. I mean, even when you have the perfect goals put on a piece of paper, it doesn't mean that you have achieved your goal or, or you're no. on the way to achieve the goal. Like you achieve some, you will not achieve others. But, but living intentionally, living by design is something that, I don't know about you, but in my educational system, in the school, in the university, nobody ever told me how to set goals, how to manage my personal finance, how to manage my time. Yeah. Very important life skills, which I had to learn somehow by experience, reading books, going to seminars, which is uh, very, very interesting. Why, why don't we actually teach those kind of life skills? Where did you learn this? Did you, did you just learn this through, you know, through life, through coming up with those things? Or did you, did you have some great mentors? A particular mentor that absolutely changed my life. And I was in my mid-20s, and he was the one that taught me about affirmations. He taught me about the voices. He taught me how to create a plan, right? He, he was, I mean, I had other great mentors along the way in my life that helped me. Each one kind of helped me. But this particular one, he, he really, he was the one that gave me Robert Greenlee's treatise on servant leadership. He, he was the one that put me through courses on, on how our brains work and how do we create a better, how we change habits. He was the one, and I'm still friends with him today. He had an incredibly bright side. Uh, you know, he also had a dark side. He had a side that I didn't want to copy, but his bright side was, was incredibly bright and taught me so much. And, and he was the one that exposed me. He exposed me to transcendental meditation in business, all sorts of things. And, you know, it was, I was lucky, but I, I was always open to learning, you know? Uh, he wasn't like, he was uh, three years older than I was. He wasn't a lot older. He happened to be my boss in the situation, but, but you know, I learned from him. What but you don't need to, find, you can read books on things you want to learn about. You know, I always love to read books on people that accomplish great things in their lives and you learn so much from that not that you want to do all the things they did but there's some you may get a point or two out of each book well this guy gave me a lot of point pointers and what would be your top three advice for people who want to find a mentor uh mentors come in all shapes and sizes they don't need to be people that you report to they don't need to be older than you they could be younger than you. Sometimes your mentors come from people that report to you. Sometimes your mentors could come in, in your religious affiliation. Sometimes your mentor could be your wife or your significant other. Sometimes your mentor could be your child. Remember what mentors help you do is to learn and to grow. So each person can add something to your life along the way. So, you know, look for people that, I mean, I wouldn't be looking for a mentor that had a, that was always dark, you know, that was always negative. I want, I want to be around people that are uplifting, you know, but, and that, uh, and you can, you know, look around and ask people, you, you see people every day. If you're at work or you're in some kind of organization, you'll see, hear somebody that talks about something that you want to learn more about. Ask them, tell me about that. Can we have lunch? You know, mentorship doesn't have to be over years. It could be a one lunch. You know, one conversation. 
It could be on an airplane sitting next to somebody. Instead of talking yourself, ask them questions. No, uh, one. I'm always interested. I always like to, if somebody, I think somebody is older than me, which is getting hard to do now, but I always ask them, tell me about your life. How, you know, you're, you're, I, you're, you know, I don't know how old you are, but you know, are you, you know, they say, well, I'm 89. I say, well, tell me about how you lived your life. What, what, what did you love about your life? What would you have changed about your life? You know, I'm always asking questions and then you find mentors. That's the way you find mentors. You know, Howard, one of the that that's uh, great to what you're sharing, and I love the fact that sometimes we're kind of looking for this one person, yeah, that has the mentor like from the movies, which is yeah, doesn't yeah. have to be right. I mean, there's there's books, by the way. I want to remind everybody, I love this book, Howard. Thank you so much for being so humble and, and sharing this all these details and subtleties. The book is called It's Not About the Coffee by Howard Behar. A lot of great books, podcasts by people that actually experienced the one specific uh, inspiration I recently had a lesson was by a keynote done by the comedian, Kevin Hart. Yeah. And one thing he shared, it's so simple, but he shared this thing. People ask me, why am I so successful? There are many things, but one of them, when I don't know something, I'm not afraid to ask. Yeah. I'm not afraid to put my ego aside and, and tell people, I don't know, tell me how do I do it? Yeah. And it, it's so simple, it, that, but it really struck me that it's like, I don't know if I'm always asking questions when I don't know how to deal with it or I'm trying to figure it out myself. And it kind of gave me this permission to, to ask for help. Yeah, yeah, why not? Right, people wanna help. You know, they, when you ask people to help, they, they feel better about themselves because they get to help somebody. So, you, you know, for me, that's, that's everything. Cause I want to, I want to, and my whole life is about that. And, uh, you know, when I can, lots of times I can't, you know, but I always, if I'm not the one, then I say, here's somebody you need to talk to. That's better, a lot better at this than I am. How do we deal with that? How do we deal with, uh, if we're afraid to ask for help, what, what do we do to, to accept the fact and just to, to go create, an create a positive affirmation. I always enjoy asking for help when I have something that I don't know about. And when I ask for, when I ask for help, it makes me feel better about myself. It's about Any, shifting the story. An right? And start repeating that affirmation every day. And you know, a month from now, you'll feel differently. That's, that is fantastic. Howard, what is up uh, with you these days? Uh, one thing that uh, I recently saw a podcast uh, you did with uh, Ed Milet, uh, yeah. and you shared some fantastic things there as well. And very fascinating thing you did is you, you gave your phone number yeah, I'm and your email that. address. And, and, yeah. and just to tell you guys, Ed Milet's podcast is one of the most popular personal development and business podcasts in the world. And this gentleman here was uh, a former founding president of uh, Starbucks International. He gave his phone number. <laughs> and my email. So here it is, everybody. Get ready. Okay. My cell phone number is 206-972-7776. That's 206-972-7776 in the United States if people around the world see this. 
And my email address is hb, my initials, hb at howardbihar.com. And so, you know, I get back to everybody. It may take me a while. <laughs> With the Ed Milan podcast, I had no idea what was coming, right? I, I thought, normally I get five to 10 people. I've had over 200. It's taken me forever to catch up. But I do. I get there. Why do you do that? I mean, you don't have to do this, right? I mean, why? That's because it's part of my mission. It's, it's, it's what I'm trying to do in life, to nurture and inspire the human spirit. So what's a good, better way, no better way to do it than when somebody has a question or they just, maybe they just want to talk to somebody. Maybe they just want to offload something, you know, to have somebody like that, you know. I mean, I can't be somebody's psychiatrist or psychologist or marriage counselor. I'm not that. But, you know, things about business and things about that, I'm pretty good at and, and I, I know things. But, but if I don't, I'll, I'll advise, you know, say, hey, that's not my skill set. I had somebody say, ask me about picking at great stocks. I said, I'm not the guy you want to ask. I'm the worst one at it. You know, you know, so, you know, I, I enjoy it. Look, I get something out of it, you know, so I don't do it because I, because it makes me feel terrible. I do it because it makes me feel good. I love that. Thank you so much, Howard. And, and those of you who are listening, uh, now you have Howard's number and you know that uh, if you are into stocks, maybe that's not the right thing to call him for. <laughs> <laughs> but there's some certain other topics that I'm sure that uh, you might want to pick his brain or uh, just have a conversation with. This is fantastic. Howard, it's been such a great time having you here and also having you on the Leaders Who Care platform, sharing all these learnings and insights. Now people are going, and this is going to be my final question, people are going through very interesting uh, couple of years, let's put it uh, that way, with a global pandemic, uh, lots of uncertainty in many, in many places. What would be your advice to, to people who's been struggling, going through difficult times, maybe even losing a, a person close to them and not being certain where the business is going? What would be advice of dealing with these uncertain times? Well, I think that like I was talking about that if we're gonna have fulfilling lives, we have to be, we're exposed to everything. Sadness, loss, difficulty. And I always have this saying, there are no stressful situations, only stressful responses. So we have to learn how to respond unstressfully. Not easy sometimes. I mean, when somebody in your family dies, that's a, you know, it's a tragedy and it's difficult to get through. But remember the words my mother always say, this too shall pass. And you have to use, you have to repeat things to yourself to remind yourself that you will be okay. It'll be okay. And uh, does everything work out the way we want it to work out? No, sometimes things don't. Sometimes you get sick and you, you know, and you have uh, bad health problems and it's not easy, and and you know I'm not here to tell you that that it's easy. It's not, but the more that you can focus on how you respond to things, the better off you're going to be. The more that you can focus on realizing that you're not the only one in this world that's suffering. You know, there's lots of people that are, and you're part of it. And it's a giant we. And and if you're struggling, ask for help. Ask for help. You know, get somebody that, that can give you help, that can be positive around you. Don't, don't be around the people that are negative. Don't be the one around the people. When you're struggling, don't get in bed with somebody that is ne negative and not, you know, not gonna 
build you up or help you out. Try to be around people that are positive and give you the positive energy that you need. But we're willing to ask for help, whether it's your minister, your priest, your, uh, 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 you know, I forget what's in Islam, uh, your, you know, or a rabbi or whatever, you know, or whoever, or your friend, your best friend, you know, or your workmate, you know, be willing, you have to be willing to expose yourself and be authentic and vulnerable to do it, but you can. All right, I know I said it's, uh, thank you so much. I know it said it's a final question, but actually I saw my notes and there was one thing I wanted to ask you, which is uh, compassion and emptiness. Yeah. What is compassion and emptiness? I have two word quote, compassion. So here's how I learned that, why it became so important to me. Just like every other man in the world, we want to solve our wives' problems and our children's problems, right? And they all, all they never want us to do that. They just want us to listen. Right. And I'm reading this book one day and here's this quote, compassion and emptiness. And I read on and it said being full of full of compassion, but empty of solution. Right. So so I, you know, and my wife was always mad at me because she said, I don't want you to try to solve my problem for me. Just listen. And it took me the longest time to figure that out. And so that when well, that quote came along and and every time I go to solve somebody's problem, I say, Howard, compassion and emptiness, compassion and emptiness. And that's where it came from. Full of compassion, empty of solutions. So especially men listening, I hope you get this lesson because it's going to be very helpful yeah. for, for your life. Howard, thank you so much for, for your time. Uh, thank you for, for all the, the difference you're making, inspiration when it comes to in, inspiring leaders to, to be servant leaders and yeah. to, to be compassionate, to be caring. Uh, now you guys have uh, Howard's number, Howard's email, so you can always reach out. Uh, it's been a pleasure having Howard. And once again, make sure to go. There's two books that Howard has. I'm reading one of them, and it's amazing. It's called It's Not About the Coffee. It is on Amazon. Get a few copies, not just one. Give it to a friend. Every leader, every entrepreneur needs to get a copy of this book. And uh, it's been such a pleasure having Howard. Episode 88 of Productivity Master, which means there's 87 more. So uh, if you enjoyed that one, <laughs> sure to go out and check out the rest of the episodes, subscribe, give us a review, send it with a friend. We would love to keep on bringing such caring leaders as Howard. Thank you so much, Howard. For Thank you, Stoyan. Okay, take care. Thank you guys for listening. And if you're looking for somebody to help you step up your team performance and boost your productivity, make sure to check out stoyanyankov.com for online workshop solutions and programs designed to help you go through the current situation in a smoother manner. Stay safe and keep moving forward.